Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles this morning and go with me to Mark chapter number 13, the book of Mark and chapter number 13 for our time together this morning around the Word of God. Mark chapter 13, and we're going to begin reading verse number 1. We'll read down just a few verses. We'll probably get down to about verse number 6 or 7 this morning. Mark chapter 13, verse number 1. If you don't have your Bible with you, there should be one perhaps in the back of the seat in front of you. Maybe in the back of the seat behind you, you'll find a copy of God's Word. And we would encourage you to pick up that copy and follow along with us. Mark chapter number 13. And if you're willing and able, would you stand with me out of respect for the reading of the Word of God? Mark chapter 13. And look with me in verse number 1. And as he went out of the temple... One of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here? Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled. For such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. Just take a glance with me at the chapter, verse Eight, nation against nation. Verse 8, earthquakes in diverse places, famines and troubles. And Jesus is saying these are only the beginning of sorrows. They'll deliver you to councils. Verse 9, the gospel will be published in all the nations. Verse number 10. Brother will betray brother, father will betray son, children will rise up against their parents. In verse number 12, you will be hated for my sake. In verse number 13, there'll be the abomination of desolation. In verse number 14, this is of course where the Antichrist will raise up a temple, an idol to himself at the site of the temple. He will demand worship of all the world. He will say, I am Christ, worship me. And Jesus is saying, this is just the beginning. Verse 8, pray ye that your flight be not in the winter. You'll be able to escape. There won't be, won't be a difficult time in escaping. Verse 23, and take heed. Behold, I have foretold you all things. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The moon shall not give her light. 
Verse 26. Then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Verse 32. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, and neither the Son, but the Father. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use your word in our lives. Father, I pray that your word would give us confidence, your word would give us hope, your word would give us discernment, your, your word would give us wisdom, would give us peace, that we might know how we ought to live. And in Jesus' name we pray, and all the church said together, amen. Thank you for standing, you may be seated. Don't know if you've thought this yet or not, but you do know that the world is coming to an end, don't you? There are many people throughout the ages who have tried to predict this. They've tried to predict when the world will come to an end. Someone predicted that the world would come to an end December the 21st, 2012. They based this on the Mayan calendars. They said that the Mayan calendars didn't go any farther than that. And so that was proof from this ancient civilization that that would be the end of the world. Well, guess what? December 21st, 2012 came and went, and we are still here. Another time that the world was supposedly supposed to an end, according to a radio host by the name of Harold Camping, he said that the world would end on October the 21st, 2011, at 6 o'clock, exactly. Wow, that's pretty specific, isn't it? He had that thing down to the minute. Well, guess what? October 21st, 2011 and 6 o'clock came and went, and we're still here. How many of you remember the days of Y2K? Let's see. Raise your hand. Be honest. You bought some canned goods. You store it up. Because the computers weren't going to be able to click over into the new 2000s, and so the world would end. I mean, the world is going to end if we don't have computers and, and cell phones and TVs. It's the end of the world. I, I got to thinking as I was studying this week, you know, when, when is the most current date that people are predicting that the world will end? Well, I found one. The end of the world, someone has predicted, might be on September the 21st, 2028, which would mean we have 2,293 days left until the end of the world. And I thought, well, that can't be right. That's, a, that's, that's quite a few years away from now. So I said, well, is there a more recent date? And I found this clock that's behind me. When is the end of the world? Monday, June 13th, 2022. This is reflecting Long Beach time. So we have... 14 hours, 849 minutes left. I don't know if you know this or not. This is, this is quite different from the time that I pulled this morning. This morning, the clock said we have 15 hours left. We've lost an hour. And some of you, you lost that hour because you hit the snooze button. Others of us lost the hour because we were at Sunday school class. 
what, what, are, what are we trying to prove with these kind of dates? They're trying to disprove what Jesus clearly says, actually. Verse number 32, Of that day and hour knoweth no man. Concerning the day that the world ends, no man knows, only God knows. But it is very important that we understand this. That no matter how many people come along the path, come along the way, and try to say, it will be this day, it will be this season, it will be this time, it will be this moment. We cannot and we should not allow a skepticism to creep into our thinking concerning the great reality that one day the world will end and one day Jesus will come back. And that's what this is happening in the text. Mark 13 is known as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus has sat, the Bible says, on the Mount of Olives, which is over against. It's looking at the, the temple. If you were with us when we went to Israel a few years ago, you'll remember we stood there, we took a picture, saw the Golden Dome, made our way down the Via Della Rosa and walked right into the temple. The exact path, or really close to the path, that Jesus would have taken himself. And Jesus has sat down at the Mount of Olives and he has made this declaration. The disciples have said, look at the big building. Look how powerful it is. Look how strong it is. Look how imposable it is. No one will defeat us. No one will beat us. No one will overthrow us. And Jesus has said, do you think these buildings are great? you think this city is nice? There will not a, a stone in the city will not be left unturned. And Jesus then goes on to tell his disciples, you need to know this. The end is coming and here's what it will look like. Of course we do not know when it will be, but it will be. That's what we do know. So Jesus is writing, or Jesus is giving this last sermon rather here in the book of Mark. And he's wanting to make a few things clear to his disciples. He is not telling them when and where. But he is telling them why and how. So as the end of the world comes, here is why. And as the end of the world comes, here is how you and I should be living. And Jesus wants to make very clear that they are on guard against false teaching. We will talk about this at length next week. Did you know not everybody who uses the name Christian actually knows Jesus Christ? Not everyone saying that they represent Christ is truly representing Christ according to his word. And Jesus wants to be clear, on, in the end you should be on guard against false teaching. And Jesus wants to be very clear that his disciples are not unsettled by the trouble that comes their way. Of course you'll go through difficulties. Of course there'll be hardships. Of course there'll be ups and downs in life. Of course you will suffer loss and there will be defeat. But you should not be troubled by this. That word trouble literally means upside down. You shouldn't be turned upside down because of the trouble that you're experiencing in this life. Instead, count on the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus wants his disciples to be tough-minded. They're going to hate you. They're going to malign you. They're going to accuse you. They're going to laugh at you. 
They're going to betray you. They're going to turn you over to the authorities. They're going to put you to death, he says in this text. There will be an alignment of sort. And that if you are not walking step in step with the philosophy of the world, you will be aligned as those who are lunatic in the world. And Jesus is saying, you need to be tough-minded. So I'm going to take the next few weeks and we'll walk verse by verse through this text as our Bible preaching and teaching method is. But as we go through this text, I, I just want to, I want to unarm you in, in, in causing you to think that we're going to name a day or a time. We do not know when, but we do know that it will happen. And since we do not know when, how should we respond? How should we be living? And that is what Jesus is doing here. And Jesus is saying here at the beginning of this text that you and I, as the end approaches, that you and I can and should live with confidence. I want you to get that point. That we can live with confidence. We can live with confidence. What is our confidence based on? Well, look at verse number 31. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And Jesus is pointing out, there is one thing that will remain. When everything else fades away, when everything else goes away, when everything else turns away, one thing remains. What remains? The word of God. It liveth and abideth forever. People come and people go. God's word stays the same. Money comes and money goes. God's word stays the same. Popularity comes, popularity goes. God's word stays the same. It's the same for us. This is a really big $5 word called the immutability of God. Simply means that God doesn't change. He's the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. It does not change. And because God possesses in his character an immutability, it doesn't change, it doesn't move, it doesn't adjust. God does not put out poles for the way in which he should lead. It doesn't matter for him. He is the same. And because God is the same, his character is the same, then the word that he gives is the same. Everything in your world may change tomorrow. But let me tell you what will not change tomorrow. The word of God. So how can we live with confidence? Ultimately, we live with confidence because we are living our lives not based on our feelings, we are not living our lives based on our circumstances. We are not living our lives based on popularity. We are not living our lives based on whether we got the promotion or didn't get the promotion. We are not living our lives because we got the job or into the college or married the person or owned the car. We are not living our lives based on any of these things. We are living our lives based on the Word of God. That's why we preach the Bible the way we preach the Bible here at First Baptist Church. Next chapter, next verse. Why? Because we are trying to build our lives in a shifting sand time. We are trying to build our lives on something that does not move, which is the word of God. So we can live with confidence. Notice how. Let's look at the story. There's this passing comment that happens. Verse number 13 
The disciples say to Jesus, Master, look at the manner of stones and what building are here. So here's what they're saying. They're, they're, they're trying to point out to Jesus how magnificent, how significant the temple is. How impressive the temple is. They're saying, look at the temple. Look at how strong, look at how imposable the temple is. The temple cannot possibly be overturned, can it? Jesus says the answer then, verse 2, seest thou these great buildings? He says, you see this huge temple. This shall not be left one stone upon the other that shall not be thrown down. He says the temple will be overthrown. And in fact, the temple was overthrown 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus made this promise. The Romans came in and completely overran and overthrew the temple. But what Jesus is saying is difficult for the disciples to wrap their mind around. It's hard for them to understand why. Well, not simply because of the temple's architecture, although that's a part of it. Huge stones cut out, laid one on the other, an imposing wall, a deep valley on either side, a very rich and entrenched city on the other side that any army could have come into Jerusalem and overthrew them was, was almost out of mind for them. But it wasn't just the architectural design and it wasn't just the military force that the temple or that the city represented. It's much more than that. It was the religious significance that the temple represented. So to the disciples and to them that were gathering in Jerusalem that day, you'll remember that this is Passover week. All of those pilgrims from all across Israel were making their way to Jerusalem for this week of celebrating the Passover. The, the reality that God had set them free from slavery in Egypt, had brought them all the way to the promised land. These are the Old Testament stories of Genesis and Exodus, and they were Commanded once a year for one week to come make this journey be reminded of how God has set you free from the slavery that you were in that he redeemed you to be a people to himself this was a religious moment for them this was the epicenter of all of their universe it was the epicenter of their building their military but mainly their religiousness you must, be, you must remember the temple was where God was known. The temple was where God's glory had been seen. The temple was where you came to encounter God. And Jesus says to the disciples, this very temple, the epicenter of everything that you regard about knowing God, will be brought down. You remember what happened in the temple? Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah had gone into the temple and he had seen the Lord high and lifted up. You remember what happened in the temple? Mary and Joseph, they discovered that Jesus had been separated from them. He'd gone to the temple because he was, a, he was to be about his father's business and he's teaching. The temple was everything for them. There are many people who live their life this way. They ascribe significance they, they ascribe worth to something in their life other than Christ they think of this thing as the epicenter 
the significant thing about them. And this thing that they see as the center, they take pride in, they find self-righteousness in, they, they place their security in, they put their confidence in. This, this thing is what makes them feel significant in their own eyes. This is what makes me matter. This is what makes me important. This is what gives me value. This is where I find worth. Maybe it's your success. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your popularity. Maybe it's a particular relationship you have. Maybe it's your parenting. Maybe it's your husband or wife. Maybe it's the kind of car you drive. And Jesus is saying that thing, other than God, where you are placing your significance, your worth in, it can be, listen, it can be overturned in a day. Think of it. What do you really have that you could not lose before the end of the day today? You could lose your health that fast. You could lose your wealth that fast. You could lose your mind that fast. You could lose a particular relationship that fast. What do you have that you could not lose by the end of the day today? And there are many people in this life that they're going through their life and they're placing their worth, their significance, they're placing it in these things, these things other than Christ. And Jesus is saying, no, the things of this world, they will be overturned. The things of this world, they will pass away. The things of this world will pass away. It's a passing comment and that forces the disciples to ask Jesus a question. Notice it's a private question, verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter, James, John, Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be? You know what struck me this week as I studied this passage? Their question was not the kind of question that we would have asked. Their question was, when will this happen? You know what we would have asked? We would have asked, why will this happen? When people go through hard seasons, when they go through difficult times, we say, why? Why did this happen to me? Why did I have to go through this? Why did I lose that? There's isn't a why question. But why did they not ask why? Is it because they, they perfectly understood everything that Jesus had been telling them about how the end would come? Of course not. No, the disciples did not understand much of what Jesus said. So why did they not ask why? And the short answer to this, why will the temple be overthrown? And here's the, here's the short answer. Because it is no longer needed. It's no longer needed. Matthew said it in just a phrase, Matthew chapter 12, something greater than the temple is here. And the something that was greater than the temple was in fact a someone. And that someone was Jesus himself. 
You see, they had to go to the temple in order to know the presence of God. They had to go to the temple in order to meet with God. They had to go to the temple in order to receive forgiveness of sin from God. They had to go to the temple in order to know that God was there with them. But you and I, because of Christ, do not have to go to a temple. You and I do not have to go to a temple to meet God. Why? Because God came to us. And how did God come to us? He came to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. That God wrapped himself in human flesh. And the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, he humbled himself and became man. He took on human flesh, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And he did this for you and me because he loves you. That's why. Why did the temple have to be destroyed? Because something, someone... Greater than the temple was here. Why did the temple have to be destroyed? Well, you'll remember this. The temple had to be destroyed because they had corrupted temple worship. You remember what Jesus said about the activities that were going on in the temple? He said this was supposed to be a house of prayer. This was supposed to be a place where you came to meet God. And yet you have turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves. They had become distracted by externalized religion. And so all these things must be put in their place and the temple must be overturned. Let, let's make a, a very clear point here about the difference between religion and relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion says if you do this, then you will be accepted by God. This is the contrast between every religion in the world and Christianity. Because Christianity alone says, no, 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 no. You are accepted by God, not because of anything that you have done, but because of what God has done for you. And what has God done for you? What has God done for me? He has sent us the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, who lived a perfect sinless life, who died an atoning death on the cross, who then they laid him in the grave, and three days later, he rose physically, literally from the dead. This is what God has done for us. Religion says, do these things. And God might accept you in the end. If you have more do's than you do don'ts, then God will accept you in the end. A biblical Christianity says, no, 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 no. It's not what you do, and it's not what you don't. It's what God has already done. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercies that he has saved us by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of, his, of, of, of the Holy Ghost. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done. God does not need your good works. God cannot possibly love you more than he already does. And he proved his love, the Bible says. He commended his love. That, that word commended, it literally means showcased. He put it on display. You, you remember when you got engaged? Remember when your husband took that huge, fancy, beautiful diamond ring 
and slid it onto your finger. You remember what you did for the next three months of your life as you walked around everywhere? Every time you pointed at the office, you went, oh, look over there. Oh, look over here. Oh, let me just type right here with this, right? You were, what were you doing with that diamond ring? You were commending it. That's the word. You were commending it. You were showcasing it. You were demonstrating, look how much he loves me. The size of the diamond matters. Look how much he loves me. And how did God display his love to you? And how does God display his love to me? He showcased his love. Listen, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinning, Jesus was dying. Jesus died for you and me. You want to know the depth of the love of God? Look to the cross of Christ. You want to know the meaning of the love of God? Look to the cross of Christ. You want to understand the richness of the love of God? Look to the cross of Christ. Religion says, do these things and God might accept you. Relationship with God says, no, no, no. I, I have all the love I need from God because I've put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Why did the temple need to be destroyed? It was no longer needed. Jesus came. They corrupted temple worship. Why did it have to be destroyed? Because temple worship gave way to a sense of self-righteousness. A, a, a self-justification. A sense of having to justify my own self in the eyes of others. Who are you to tell me what to do? Well, listen, friend, you and I are nobody. But God, God is somebody. And God has given us his word. And you and I are to live our lives in obedience to the word of God. They had corrupted temple worship with, with a sense of self-righteousness. You know what self-righteous people need to do? Self-righteous people always need to walk around and, and try to diminish others. They, they try to point out the flaws in everyone else. You ever heard somebody say this before? Well, I don't go to church because, you know, at church, there's just a bunch of hypocrites at church. You ever heard somebody say that? You ever heard somebody say that? Like three people raise their hand? I just said it a minute ago, so you can. <laughs> I don't go to church. There's hypocrites at church. There's sinners at church. That's why I don't go to church. Well, I got news for you. There are sinners at church. How many of you this morning, you go, you know what? I am a sinner. Let me see. Raise your hand. Look, look around the room. Just scoot over, grab your purse, keep it close. You're probably sitting next to a sinner. <laughs> the, the whole idea of being able to come to a relationship with God, you know what Christianity begins? It begins by recognizing you're a sinner. We've all sinned. And people go, oh, I don't go to church because they're sinners. You cannot have a relationship with God if you're not aware of your sin. You're not aware that you've separated yourself from God as a result of sin. Sin that was inherent in you. It's the nature of sin. For as by one man sin entered into the world, death by sin. So death passed upon all men for all have sinned. You never taught your son or your daughter how to tell a lie. And yet they're really good at telling a lie. You never taught your son or daughter how to bite their brother or sister in order to get the toy. And yet they bite their brother and sister in order to get the toy. Where'd they learn that? From their mother. That's probably who they learned that from. 
No, they learn that because they have an inherent sin nature. So we're sinners by nature. So why do we sin? Why do we commit acts of sin? Why do we commit deeds of sin? We sin by way of our living and our action because sinners is who we are. We are all sinners. We are sinners, so therefore we sin. And our sin, the Bible says, separated us from a holy and a righteous God. That you cannot know God because you are in sin. And so you need to be set free from your sin. How am I set free from my sin? Well, every other religion in the world says, well, you're way down there. And now you start doing all of these good deeds and you might climb the ladder of righteousness and be accepted by God. No, no, no. Christianity says, you're right, you're lost in your sin, and there's no way for you in your sin to get all the way up to where God is. And so here's what God did for you, and here's what God did for me. God came down to where we are. He humbled himself when he sent Jesus Christ into this world, who died on the cross for our sin, the Bible says. And if you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, you shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from your sin. You see, see, if you're truly saved, then you know what you don't have to, you know what you no longer have to do. You no longer have to walk around with a sense of self-righteousness. Always pointing out how everybody else is doing something wrong. Because you are aware of the wrong that you yourself have already done. And the wrong that you would be capable of doing had it not been for the grace of God. See, that's what Paul says. Paul says, but by the grace of God, there go I. I. I'd be doing things much worse than that had God not saved me. And had God not given me his word. And had God not filled me with his spirit. And had God not guided me along my path of life. No, no, no. There's nothing good in me. There's nothing good in you. There's nothing intrinsically good in the first Baptist church. You know the only thing good here? The good thing here is God. That's the good thing. So we don't have to walk in and stick out our chest. I'm so much better than everybody else in the city. We don't have to do that. No, we can, we can walk in knowing who we are, knowing who God is, knowing how much God loves us. And we can be confident. Confident in knowing that God knows all there is to know about you and he loves you anyway. He loves you anyway. The temple had to be destroyed because the temple had become idol worship for them. Can I explain to you for a second what an idol is? An idol is anything that if it is taken away from us, we think we will die. Sometimes we have in our minds these conjured up images like an idol has to be something that you can just put in your pocket and you can just set it out. And it's true, some places of the world, that's, that's truly what it is. Idol worship. They're worshiping that piece of wood. They're worshiping that stone. But for you and I, we might find ourselves thinking, well, I don't worship stone. I don't worship a, a, a piece of wood. Right, but an idol is anything that, if we, that we think, if I lost that, I could no longer live. And an idol is anything that we think, because I have that, I can live. Because I have that job, I'm, I mean something. I matter. 
I'm significant. I'm important. And if I lost that job, I would die. I wouldn't even know what to do. I couldn't even live. I wouldn't even want to breathe. That's become an idol for us. A thing that we think we cannot live without and a thing that we try to live by. Anything that we try to find our identity, our importance, our significance in. A job, a career, money, fame, popularity, a relationship. This thing that you think, I can't live if I don't have that. Or this thing you think, I get to live because I have this. That is what the temple had become for them. Look at the big building, Jesus. Look at the architecture. Look at its military might. Look at its religious significance. Because we have this, we will never, we will never be overthrown. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. This, this temple that you see will be overturned. Not a stone left. And it was true. It happened. But the question for them was not why. The question for them, notice, it is when. When shall these things be and what shall be the sign for when all these things shall be fulfilled? The disciples couldn't imagine a world without a temple. If the temple came down for them, it was over. It's the end of the world. So tell us, here's what they're saying. So tell us when. What shall be the sign of when these things shall be? You see, friend, if you're living your life trying to find the significance of your life in a relationship, a job, a, a possession, a position. If you're living your life trying to find your significance in anything other than God, you know what you do not have? You do not have security. You're always wondering, when is it going to be taken away? When is it going to be overthrown? When am I going to lose it? I got I to gotta try to keep it as much as I got to keep the show up as long as I can. I, when is it going to happen? But when you have security, when you've put away your idols, when you've turned from your self-righteousness, when you've seen God for who he is, you've seen Christ for who he is, you've understand what Christ has done for you, you know what it fills your heart with? It fills your heart with a confidence that you can live in this world. No matter what happens in this world, you can live with a confidence in knowing that you are safe. You're secure. Why? Because you have something that this world can never take away from you. Relationship with the living God of the universe. So notice this. When the disciples embrace this, they find a purposeful design. A purposeful design. Tell us when shall these things be. Watch this. Jesus says the temple is going to be destroyed. Verse 2. Jesus says, verse 26, the end of the world will come. You see what Jesus is doing here? He is helping the disciples understand that everything that happens in this world, everything that happens in history is his story. Everything that happens in history is his story. Jesus is saying, from right now, when I'm about to lay down my life, to 40 years from now, when this temple is overthrown, all the way to the end of the world, whatever that may be, 
all the way to the end of the world. It is all, every moment of it, being governed by God. You need to understand something if you're going to live with confidence in this world. There is not one moment, there is not one second, there is not one minute of your life, of my life, or of the world where God is not fully in control. There's not some kind of alternate reality that may play out. We're not left to circumstances. We're, we're, we're not left to the will of individuals. No, no, no. All of history. The moment Jesus is talking about of his own death, 40 years from the moment of which Jesus is predicting, till the end of the world here, all of it is under the control of God. All of it is being governed by God. All of it is being moved by the good hand of God. And all of it is going according to the plan of God, including your life and my life. Including your health and my health. It's all in the plan of God. There are many things about tomorrow that I don't seem to understand, the songwriter wrote. Anybody ever feel like that? I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm doing good just to keep up with today. There are many things about tomorrow that I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow. And I know I'm in his hand. You see that kind of confidence? That Jesus is instilling in his disciples that he wants to have instilled in your heart and in my heart. It's a troubling thing to forget who holds tomorrow. And so if we're going to have confidence, we must remember. We must remember. God is in control. God is in control. The Bible says in, book, in the book of Colossians that Christ holds all things together and by him all things consist. Okay, have you thought about this for a second? What keeps you and I from flying off of this earth? It's spinning around at astronomical speeds and while it is spinning in a circle, it's rotating the sun. Why are you and I not being flung off of this planet? Because God is holding you right here. By him, all things consist. That is what the scripture is teaching over and over and over again. And when we understand that, when we put our confidence in, when we put our trust and faith in that, then we can have a confidence for that. So let me give you these three things as we conclude. We can live by confidence when we do these three things. First, live for the glory of God. The disciples, they were concerned about the glory of the temple. They, they were concerned about the significance of the temple, the awesomeness of the temple. No, no, no. You and I are to live for the glory of God. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whatsoever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, do all to the glory of God. Let me ask you a question, friend. Everything that you've done so far today, has it been for the glory of God? 
Everything that you will do tomorrow, will it be for the glory of God? Everything that you did last week, everything you said, the way you treated your parents, the way you talked to your wife, the way you interacted with your husband, the way you talked with your children, were these things, were all of those things done for the glory of God? You go to school for the glory of God? Did you go to work for the glory of God? You were good, kind to your neighbor for the glory of God so that men and women might see our good works and then glorify our Father which is in heaven. Jesus says this to the disciples. No, no, no. God does not need your good works. But listen, your neighbor does. And so when you're good and you're kind and you walk in the spirit and you're patient and you're long-suffering and you're full of joy and you're hopeful and you're encouraging, you know what happens? People go, well, how can you be so happy at a time like this? Oh, I'm glad you asked me that. Let me tell you why I'm so happy at a time like this. Because I serve a God who owns all time. That's why. Let me tell you about Jesus. That's how I can be happy at a time like this. You see? You know what you're doing? You are living not for your own glory. You are living for the glory of God. We live in a world and a time in a year where everyone around us is saying, live for your own glory. Live for your own worth. Do what makes you happy. Do what gives you pleasure. And then, and then just display it for everybody to see. No, 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 no. That's not the way God calls us to live. God says, no, don't live for yourself. Live for me. You want to live with confidence? Live for the glory of God. You want to live with confidence? Second, listen to the word of God. You want to live with confidence? Listen to the word of God. Jesus says, verse 2, you see this building? It's going to be knocked down. And guess what happened? The building was knocked down. Which simply reminds us of a truth that we need to be reminded of. And that is namely this. God is good for his word. There are not very many people who are good for their word. Have you learned that already? Not very many people who when they say they're going to do something, do they actually follow through and do it. But God is always good for his word. Jesus said, this temple, it will be knocked down. Forty years later, guess what happened? The temple was knocked down. God is good for his word. Listen to the word of God. If you want to live with confidence, listen to the word of God. Why? Because the word of God doesn't change. You know what changes? Your feelings change. You know what changes? Culture changes. You know what changes? Society changes. All of these things change, but God never changes. And so when we are living according to the word of God, we can live with confidence. No matter how we may feel, no matter what society may say, no matter what culture may be doing, we can have a confidence about the way in which we are living because we are living for his glory ultimately and we are living by the word of God. Third and last, how do we live with confidence? Live for the glory of God. Listen to the word of God. Last one. Are you with me? Bring your worries to God. Look what the disciples do. The disciples hear this and it bothers them. You ever get bothered? Come on now. You ever get bothered? 
Some of you are bothered right now. You're, you're supposed to be done five minutes ago. <laughs> Want to know why we're still here? I'm hungry. Well, you should have came to Sunday school class. You would have had a donut if you would have came to Sunday school class. The disciples are bothered. They're troubled. They're upset. Jesus has just told them, everything you think you know in this universe, it is going to get turned upside down. And you know what they do? Look, look, you know what they do? They go to Jesus. You know what they didn't do? They didn't go to Facebook. Because that ain't going to help you. That ain't going to help you. They, they, didn't, they didn't go to alcohol. They didn't go to some narcotics and try to drown it out. You know why? That ain't going to help you. You get to the bottom of that bottle, you'll still have all your troubles. You get to the bottom of that bottle, you'll still have all your troubles. You get to the end of that joint, you're still going to have all your problems. That's not going to help you. You know what they did? They went to Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus cares for you. Cast all your care on me. Because I care for you. As some of us, we're getting ourselves into these positions where we're worried, we're bothered, and we're trying to find an answer in someone who doesn't care for us or in something that just wants to use us, but we are not going to the one who cares for us. The one who cares for us is Jesus. I told you this story before, but my wife is uh, really good at praying for the small things in this life. I like to pray for the big things. Lord, help the situation in the Middle East, help the situation in Ukraine, help us with this thing in the city, help us with these elections, help us with, this, with these big problems at church, help us with this big program we're doing here. Pray for these big things. Amanda, Amanda loves to pray for the little things. So my boys are away at college. They'll call. They'll say, Dad, where's Mom? I'll go, she's right here. Oh, can I, can I talk to her? Oh, why do you want to talk to her? Oh, well, we, we want her to pray for something for us. Hello, I'm a pastor. <laughs> I, I, I can do that. Pretty good at, pretty good at praying. No, 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 we, we, won't, we won't ask Mom to do it. She prays for the small stuff. Amanda does. Amanda prays, Lord, you help there to be no traffic as I... Go to work today. What? Is he listening to that? Lord, you help the Amazon delivery truck driver to get that gift here in time because you know we ordered it last minute and it's got to be here for the, Christmas for the Christmas party here in just another minute or two. She prays for the small things. Some people say, well, you shouldn't do that. No, no, God says specifically, bring me all these things. All the things that turn you upside down. They turn him upside down. Do you know why? Because he cares for you. So you want to live confidently in this world? Live for the glory of God. Listen to the word of God. And bring all of your cares and worries and troubles. Bring them to God. He'll listen. He'll give you wisdom. And he understands.